Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Jason Buenrostro from Harvard University on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you got your PhD from Stanford University School of Medicine in 2016. You then went on to the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard as a junior fellow. And since 2018, you are an assistant professor at Harvard University. And you're obviously there still today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, I probably, you know, you might hear many stories of, of people um, being interested in biology as a kid and, and, and things like this. I actually came to biology much later in my career, um, not until I was an undergraduate um, at, at uh, Santa Clara University in California, um, did I start becoming a biology. And, and um, I think that my path was a little different, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. But, um, you know, I was most interested in actually uh, clinical medicine. Right. So thinking I wanted to become a doctor, right? A uh, medical doctor, you know, not, not a science doctor. Um, and I pursued that career path uh, for, for most of my, my training. Um, but then I also found myself being really drawn to um, questions in, of engineering, uh, building tools, making devices, you know, getting excited about technologies. Maybe not surprised given I grew up actually in the California Bay Area is called Silicon Valley, right? Um, and, you know, over time, it just kind of made sense that like a natural way to integrate those two um, general interests was to pursue a career in basic research. Um, somehow that made sense to me, right, where we can have the opportunity to answer um, and to uh, hope to address uh, clinical needs and questions, right? Um, but using technologies um, and building the technologies um, that rely on kind of some some you know, philosophies and mindsets of, of engineering and sometimes even the skill sets of engineers um, to answer those questions. So that's how I, I came to become interested in, in, in uh, you know, biology. Um, um, and, I, and I think that that kind of motivates the kind of work we do these days yeah. too. Coming to this work uh, uh, you're doing right now, um, your work centers around developing biological tools, as you already mentioned, to measure And now it gets more specific, chromatin dynamics and single cells and using these tools to study chromatin alterations in different cell types and disease states. Also, um, again, the doctor, uh, <laughs> the doctor field uh, to uncover new mechanisms of gene regulation and their contribution to those diseases. I want to start with your first first author paper that was published in 2013 and by which you are probably most often identified. Um, the title of this paper is Transposition of Native Chromatin for Fast and Sensitive Epigenomic Profiling of Open Chromatin, DNA Binding Proteins and Nucleosome Position, essentially describing what we all know as ATAC-seq. Um, can you maybe give us a little bit of insight how this all came together in the years prior to 2013? Yeah, so uh, in the year 2013, I was actually a young scientist. Um, I, I had just started grad school. Um, I think it was uh, 2011, right? So this was one of my first projects um, um, in the research lab. Um, I, I've, I had experience in science before that, so it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just completely, uh, you know, in, in, in the dark there. Um, but, um, you know, I think going into um, my graduate career, I... I joined um, a brand new lab, actually. I was Will Greenleaf's first student, and a lot of people, of course, know Will as well um, because we did this work together. 
And um, as his first student, um, he was also coming from a really different background in biology, coming from um, you know applied biophysics, actually trying to um, develop tools as well as um, the know-how of how to study single molecules, which is pretty different. Um, but he was ex- super excited about this area, and so was I. So um, at those early days, we we're just trying really naive um, things um, because I think we we're both kind of naive to the field of epigenetics, right? I um, mean, I think also at the time, the field of epigenomics was really just coming um, to its own, um, being really enabled by high-throughput sequencing, obviously. So um, my background was more in genetics. We had done, I had done a lot of cancer genomics prior to that um, time, and Will's background was more on, on thinking about um, transcription and, and single molecules. And, and we just kind of spitballed and brainstormed. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we decided to try this really, really naive thing, right, um, which was to, to put this enzyme, TN5 transposase, onto cells and just see what happens. Um, we didn't have very many expectations going into that. We're thinking, well, maybe we will capture nucleosome positions. You know, we're thinking a lot about um, MNAs at the time and, and um, those assays, right? Um, open chromatin analysis wasn't really on our radar, <laughs> uh, but it kind of tells you the power of sometimes being naive going into to a, a biological discipline. So in the very early experiments, um, we also didn't have tissue culture up and running. So I, I borrowed some cells from, from a classmate of mine in the lab next door. Um, I didn't know to, to wash the cells from DMEM, so the cells were red. <laughs> um, and then I just added transposition mix. And, and sure enough, you know, we ran the gels and did PCRs as I knew how to do, right, as a young grad student. And you were able to see nucleosome banding um, there in those early gels. And, and um, you know, sure enough, I was like, Will, Will, look what happened. I got m to work using transposase, right? And we're like, wow, that's super cool. So, so that was like the beginning of the project. One of the early, early experiments we did, I think even during my rotation. Um, and then over time, you know, the challenge was more to, to then figure out what data we really had, right? Like to really characterize um, this, um, to characterize the sequence bias of the enzyme, which was a really important thing. Um, well, you know, we wanted to make sure that we're providing accurate measures. Um, we wanted to characterize um, what we're capturing. Um, we saw peaks, right? And we were really enabled in those early days by by collaborations with Paul Garisi um, and Howard Chang, of course. Um, and uh, Paul specifically um, had a long expertise and and has uh, say probably people aren't so familiar with anymore. Uh, FairSeq, having ha- himself developed that as a graduate student. So so you know together we we kind of like. Uh, did all these correlations to different histone modifications and marks really validated that we were doing, making open chromatin maps, um, refined the, the computational processes. I think now everybody takes it for granted um, these workflows, but at the time things were, were still feeling pretty new. Um, developed tools for footprinting and, and, and uh, MNAs positioning, liquids um, on positioning, right? And uh, I think that's what came, came to be the paper um, as it is today. Um, but it, it was just... Um, you know, the early experimental work was actually quite straightforward and moved very quickly. The analysis, which kind of ended up being the theme of most of my career in science so far, um, is this like, you know, black box thing that, that, that takes some time to actually figure out how to do it. And maybe we can shed some light of this into this black box. Um, so how does the ataxic actually work? So you take the, the TN5 and throw it on cells, but what does it do? And what can I mean? I mean, there is also like a DNA on the transposase. So, what kind of DNA are you using there? Yeah, so I can kind of just give a little bit of yeah. an experimental 101. Um, so, the enzyme TN5 transposase, for, the, for those who are listening and, and might not um, have a lot of familiarity, actually comes from uh, bacteria, right? Um, and it's, it's kind of part of this class of, of um, you know, we call them transposons or jumping genes, right? 
Um, but these enzymes work naturally within cells to, to move pieces of DNA around, right? So by pioneering work by others, um, namely uh, William Reznikoff, um, they've you know, figured out mechanistically how this worked. It was a great model for understanding transposons more generally, right? They did all a really important uh, chemical work, which I, which I learned to appreciate over, over time. Um, and um, what was, you know, the trick they, that they had figured out was that you can load this um, jumping, you know, transposon um, with instead synthetic DNA that you would synthesize in the laboratory um, that, you know, would, would encode your uh, sequencing adapters, right? So these are constant ends um, that, that kind of tell you, uh, tell us high throughput DNA sequencing where to start. So what we do is we just take this um, recombinant enzyme, this enzyme we purified in the lab and added um, DNA sequences to it and then wash it over mammalian cells. And if you get the conditions just right, you know, it's not that sensitive actually. I just mentioned to you how, how robust it is even with a naive grass student doing the experiment. Um, you can actually have it mark and tagment or cut, you know, there's lots of words we can use into regions of open chromatin, right? So these are where nucleosomes don't exist, right? Um, and the, the enzyme can easily find those regions. And then regions where there is nucleosomes where it's closed, right? It, the enzyme has a very hard time finding its way there, right? So just by then sequencing um, those pieces of, of DNA that I mentioned, you know, that we added these adapters to, you can actually find what parts of the genome are opened uh, and therefore active and therefore um, transcribing and, and participating in gene transcription, right? So gene expression, um, as well as, um, you know, regions that are closed, um, which is most of the genome, right? Um, most of the genome is closed. So in your in the paper you have a nice figure uh, showing um, the the process of that. So how does the TN5 exactly work? Is it like a monomer? Does it act in a complex or is it like a dimer? Um, and what does this then mean for the fragment size that you can expect from the cutting? I mean, you mentioned that you got a nice nucleosomal letter, but um, if you optimize it correctly, what would you expect from the fragment size? Yeah. So um, the enzyme, you know, for us it's like it's funny, right? Because it's like. What does it mean to be, there's a few things to say, right? What does it mean to be open chromatin, right? And, you know, it really like open, right? Like think about what it means to be open. Well, like how open is it? Do you have to like open the door all the way? Do you, can you open a door, you know, a little bit and call it open? Like what does it mean to be open to you, right? And these subjective terms like open, you know, you can think about it, think about that in the context of opening a box, opening a door right in your life. It, it's subjective, right? Um And in the context of, of the genome too, that measure is somewhat subjective, right? Like how open do you have to be in order to get a signal? So I'm, I'm kind of saying this because I, I wanted to mention that the, the TN5 is actually kind of big, um, you know, relatively speaking to other, other approaches that have been tried before. Um, the TN5 is a dimer, meaning there's two of them that come together and there's pieces of DNA on them. The DNA, you know, is pretty big. And overall this forms a larger complex of, of DNA and protein. So when we talk about open, we're saying open to this TN5 enzyme. And one of the things we saw kind of early on is that, you know, some of the, you know, like a little bit open, like the door being cracked, right? Um, those signals we weren't capturing with TN5. We were kind of capturing more of the like really, really open, open sites of the genome, right? Um, which is, which is um, you know, a measure of open, openness, but I don't think it's the only measure of openness, right? Does that answer your question? Yes, I might have gone on a tangent here. I forgot. Yeah, I, I, I think that it does. Uh, we don't uh, want to go into uh, like uh, 150 base pairs or something like that. But I think that. Oh that, sure, uh, yeah, yeah. I can uh, go into that as well if you think. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in that as well. So that's uh, if you can, that that's yeah, that's fine. definitely. So 
you know, in these early days, um, there was a lot, there was a lot known, but not that much known to me. <laughs> so, you know, we we're figuring this out, right? And, you know, sometimes it's fun, right? The power of technology. So, so we've kind of experienced this over and over again, um, where sometimes you can, you can do naive experiments or sometimes not naive, complicated technological experiments and learn a lot very quickly. So this is one of those assays where I was, um, we were recovering a lot of known things about chromatin structure um, in one experimental assay, right? integrating kind of observations across many experimental techniques. And, um, you know, as one example, um, the, the fragment sizes. So when you do this digestion, right, um, we get two times that we get cutting. We get the cutting on one side of the piece of DNA, we get cutting on the other side of the piece of DNA. So we require two cuts in order to, to measure something. And what we found, which was really fun, was that the really small pieces of DNA that were recovered, right, the things that were less than 100 base pairs, um, those, those were very stereotypic of... Um, what we call nucleosome-free sites. So this is kind of like totally open, no nucleosome, sometimes transcription factors, right? And if you think about it logically, right, um, if there's no nucleosome there, then you can get lots of cutting, lots of cutting, lots of cutting. And then that gives you small fragments, um, about 40 to 100 base pairs. Um, but sometimes we're finding larger fragments, right? Um, and stereotypically, they were 150, 200 base pairs long, right? And that's where the enzyme could cut on one side, and then there's something in the middle blocking it, and then it can cut on the other side of that something, right? That something, of course, is a nucleosome. And we're able to find, again, as we knew in, in, in science, right, um, pioneering work by, by, by many, including Roger Kornberg, right, was that um, the nucleosome is wrapped around 147 base pairs of DNA. And then just by looking at the sizes that were 147 base pairs or larger, we can really nicely call the positions of nucleosomes in the genome. Um, so that was really fun. So we got back, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of skipped a few steps, um, data that looks like um, MNAs data, which is a traditional method um, for doing that by looking at the fragment sizes. Um, you also mentioned that there is like a sequence bias to the enzyme. Um, what does that look like? So the sequence bias to the enzyme, this is something that concerned us a lot. And I think this is something that, um, you know, um, we we're, were worried about uh, as we... Um, um, really kind of leaned into to this as a, as a measure of, of the genome. So the sequence bias, I can't remember the sequence off the top <laughs> of my head because that would be really, I mean, I'd have a photograph number, which I definitely don't. Um, it's, it's long, right? Um, and it's um, mediated by the fact that the transposase, because it's bigger, sits on a region of DNA that, that's a little wider. So it's actually a wider region, right? Um, and so the, the, what I'm saying really specifically for those of you who maybe this is new, um, the enzyme prefers certain sequences, right? So it's not truly an unbiased measure of open chromatin, right? Because there's some sequence um, preference of that enzyme. So um, we did a lot of characterization and even like really sophisticated work that we ended up not publishing because it didn't really add that much to the narrative of the story um, where we were trying to model like dynamically, like using, using more sophisticated um, um, kind of kinetic models, right? And what this might do. Um, for open chromatin, but through a lot of, um, you know, comparative studies or we compared across cell types and a lot of, um, you know, um, really rigorous kind of comparisons to assays like DNAs1, right? Um, we, what we found was that while the transposase has sequence preference, the thing it cares more than sequence is, is it, it being opened or closed. <laughs> so even if there's an unpreferred site um, within, within an open region, it's still going to go and attack that and cut it, you know? And then, uh, so the dominant um, kind of like signal that was coming out of our data was opened or closed. And the sequence 
um, more or less dictated like the ordering of where we prefer to cut within, okay. mm-hmm. within the, the um, open chromatin site. Um, and then of course, you know, that might still give you a little bias. It's, it's still there in the data and you can see it, but most of our measures um, in biology, I would argue, are, are measures of differential, right? So the genome was a constant thing across two human cell types, right? So, mm-hmm. so we're always looking at the differential and the differentials are, are quite powered to, to find um, changes in epochromatin. So you also mentioned that there are many methods that probe the same thing as ATAC-seq, like FEA-seq, DNA-seq, and maybe also MNA-seq. Um, so what is then the advantage of ATAC-seq compared to those methods? So, you know, there was one really big advantage, and this is um, on your radar, and anybody who's done this experiment um, knows this well. Um, it's that it's super easy, right? Um, and so easy at grads, and you can do it. Um, that's kind of what, what Will would say early on. And then Later, it became so easy an undergraduate can do it. And then later on, it, it was like, you know, variants of, of that. And, you know, that's, that says a lot because I think um, prior um, to the development of a taxi, uh, it was actually quite hard um, to do a method like DNA swan. Um, even even in, in expert labs, um, there was a lot of trial and error with, with, a, with a new um, tissue or sample. Um, careful titration. And, and adjustment of our conditions in order to get it to work in one um, case. And, and it, it wasn't as like broadly used as a taxi case today, though it was really um, powerful, of course. Um, methods like ChIP-seq was a slightly more popular method, I should say significantly more popular method. And that was also really hard, right? You had to find your antibody, you know, and that was a nightmare, right? And people would argue about the best antibodies for things. And it was hard to really validate that. That's still true today. And one thing that was really convenient about the attack seek is that you didn't have to worry about the antibody, right? It was like a measure of the genome that you can know that it's reproducible across labs and across reagents. That's really important. And it was straightforward to do. You can do this within a day. Um, and, and it was um, something you could just do alongside your project as a, as a see if it's going to work, right? The barrier to start was very low. And, right, um, which the thing I didn't say, which ended up powering most of, most of our studies was that. Um, because it was so efficient and, and so straightforward, didn't require lots of steps, um, we can actually start with very few numbers of cells and profile for the first time um, the, the open chromatin states of things like a stem cell um, in your bone, right? Um, and that, that, was a, that was a really exciting time when, when we moved beyond just showing the technology could work to, to really using it in places that it wasn't possible um, to use before. So during the, the COVID times now, it became on vogue to do experiments in their like, garage and things like that. <laughs> Maybe you, you, you understand I'm what familiar, I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you do a taxi at home? <laughs> That's funny. I have to think about that. Um, it certainly, it certainly, I felt like that. I felt that way the first time I did a taxi because like we, our lab wasn't very set up, right? Um, you know, one example, just another funny example in 20, 2012 or 11, whenever it was, um, you know, we didn't have a proper incubator, but I knew that there was a warm room, um, you know, like, like, uh, down the hall. So without telling anybody where they were growing E. coli, um, since we didn't have our incubators yet, I just like would place my transposition reactions in the warm room <laughs> and wait. That's one of the reasons just for those of you who have been wondering why we do the transposition at 37 degrees Celsius. Um, it turned out it to be a really good idea for lots of reasons. We, and we be a careful, but it was, a uh, kind of one of the, um, so what did you start with then when you didn't start at 37 degrees? Sorry, say that again. Um, so you, you said you you um, didn't have a, a 
yeah, heating block or something like that, and then you turn to 37 degrees. But what was the temperature before that? Yeah, so um, the temperatures were kind of, um, you know, the, just to give people a little bit more history is that um, the transposition reaction was mostly used before that, um, just a new product, I mean, just a new development um, to make really easy whole genome sequencing libraries. So you would take the DNA out of the cell and then use it to prepare for genome. And um, that's how I had used it before, um, just to, to clarify that. And that, that was done at a temperature to 55 degrees Celsius. Okay. Um, but, you know, you can read the Reznikov papers, which I was doing, and, and you can find that the enzyme had 37 degree activity. You can rationalize, which I was doing, um, that chromatin was less stable at high temperatures, right? And there's a lot of pioneering work um, and actually kind of a, a measure of stability you can actually do by just heating up chromatin and asking questions about thermal stability, right? Um, and that work had been done. So it made a lot of sense where we knew that the enzyme was active at 37 degrees based on literature. I knew it because that was the first experiment I did. Anyway, that it was pretty active at 37. We did comparisons and showed it had the same activity at both temperatures. And you can rationalize, of course, that, that chromatin would be happier at a lower temperature rather than a hotter one. So that's why we ended up at 37. You then worked uh, to improve Atexic and brought the method to the single cell level, which you just mentioned. And this was then published in 2015. Uh, 15. So what changes did you have to make to the protocol to make it applicable to single cells? Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question. So I had, I, you know, we were trying a lot of things at the time, right? We were, you know, one of the, the actually the named goal, um, I should say, before we started doing a tax seek, um, was to do it in single cells. So one of uh, Will Greenleaf's harebrained ideas was to start doing, um, measuring the epigenome using very complicated microfluidic devices um, in single cells. And, and my, my thought going into that was like, Are the enzymes that we use are not <clears throat> optimized enough um, for us to, to do acid single cell. So that's why we first started with the taxi. But I'll say that that was the name goal to do a single cell taxi. And, um, you know, we're trying lots of things at that time, right? We were, and some of these methods you've seen published now by us and by others. Um, you know, one idea was to like transpose the cells um, as you would for normal taxi and then sort individual cells in wells and then do PCR. And we were doing that and that kind of worked. Um, But at the time, now it's easy to take for granted, but we didn't know how many, how many reads per cell, how many uh, measurements per cell we would need in order to actually do something with the data. So I just had some ambiguous thought that the more the better, right? And a few hundred was enough, maybe a few thousand was enough, so we were looking to get more. So um, we were trying lots of stuff, trying to optimize for for data per cell, you know, reads per cell. I don't know how you want to think about that. And, um, you know, we had lots of approaches. And the one that, that worked really well was, was working um, with a company called Fluidine, right? So at the time, they were um, market leaders in single-cell genomics, right? Um, having developed some of the earliest tools um, that enabled our community to, to begin working in single cells. And I worked directly with their one of their R&D teams um, to integrate um, the attack-seek workflow. In single cells. And there was a lot of like small developments, you know, one of them that's important um, to those who, who are doing these assays and maybe not important to the larger community is that we did away with, with this um, separation of steps where we would take nuclei, you know, the nucleus out of a cell. And then after taking the nucleus out, we would then do all these other things and then finally do a tax sequence. So we actually figured out how to do the nuclei um, extraction and the attack seek at the same exact time. Um, that was one really important development, right? And that's actually 
the standard protocols now that most people are using if, if they've been following some of the newest work, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, we also have to figure out a lot of other tricks, like after the ataxic step in the microfluidic device, you can't do things like use a, you know, kit to, to remove DNA. So we have to find ways to do that using um, chemicals and, and enzymes to remove the DNA from the cell so that we can then do PCR, amplify it, and then put it on the sequence. Right? So there's a number of like uh, experimental methodologies, but I would say that the biggest innovation, I, I feel like, you know, I think there's a lot of trial and error to get to data was to figure out what to do with the data. Um, once we got there, I had a lot of people telling me at that time that this would never work. Even if you got it to work, you wouldn't be able to analyze the data. We were very comfortable thinking about singles. Um, we're very comfortable thinking about a taxi um, on, you know, with million, billions of reads and things like that. Um, but we just had no roadmap um, to analyze that sort of data. So, so where I felt like the creativity was most was most there was in the analysis, actually, which was a um, so did you also then new thinking. Did you also develop tools to to analyze that, or was it just like uh, yeah, crafting it together by by your own hands? Yeah. So, and, and you know, now we think about the larger um, kind of vision of computational biology, right? Um, we're obviously lucky to to live in a time where um, code is is being shared among academic labs and and being developed in different places. So, I, you know, this was no exception. We were borrowing, um, you know tools for aligning pieces of DNA sequences onto human genomes, right? And we're borrowing tools for working with, with, um, with um, kind of the, these data sets um, um, more generally, but, uh, you know, that wasn't enough. <laughs> uh, so we also had to develop and innovate and create new tools on top of that. So, um, you know, one of the things we did was, was really think carefully about how we could define a cell, right? And um, without going too much into detail is we, we kind of um, flipped the current repertoire of tools on its head, right? So at the time, it was most common to do, you know, two ataxic experiments in a stem cell and a differentiated cell and then ask, what are the differential regions that are open? And then once you found those to find what are the sequences of transcription factors and other, and other things that best reflect the, those differences, right? So we thought about flipping that on its head creating new statistical approaches to instead ask, what are the regions of the genome that have transcription factor sequences, right? And then once you have those like annotated in, in the human or mouse genome, right? Um, can we ask a question about how much total signal of openness is there in that cell? And because we're averaging over tens of thousands of, of sites, um, you can actually like really help yourself to get enough signal so you can cluster the cell. So we developed an approach um, that kind of did the inverse of what most people were, were trying to do um, computationally. And, and I think that's um, kind of really powered um, that study. So we can cluster types of cells. We can look at how their transcription factors are different, these sorts of things, right? Um, and it's also still one of like the, the, the ways of analyzing single cell taxing data now. Now, what is it? Six years? What year is it today? I don't know <laughs> anymore. Uh, five, six years later, right? Um, so um, you mentioned that you can like look at the positions of nucleosomes, and and you 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 just mentioned that you can also see like transcription factor sites. So what kind of data are hidden in the in an ataxic data set? Is it yes. all or? <laughs> yeah. So so um, I think there's a there's a lot to think about there. Um, there's the transcription factor binding, right? Um, so you know there's different ways of doing that as well, but. 
um, one of the really neat things that, that is possible is to do something called uh, transcription factor footprinting, where, um, you know, we, I talked about opening closing as, a, as nucleosomes being there, and those are big things. Um, but there's also um, transcription factors, little proteins that bind DNA and bind our genomes, right? And that leaves a little, little tiny region of the genome that's blocked um, uh, for transposition. So you can, depending on like where the transposition happens, you can see a dip there. And those are tools that, that um, are, are really neat to use, right? Um, there's, of course, the nucleosome positioning. There's, the close, of course, the open chromatin. But most of the things we've really focused on um, over the years has been more, more on the how, how are different cell types, different types of cells in our bodies, um, opening chromatin or closing it, right? And then how does that then connect to the expression of genes, right? And we've made a lot of, I think, discoveries asking more questions about change, like how, how does change in, in chromatin opening and closing um, lead to, to changes in gene expression? And then, uh, yeah, that would have been my next question, right? If you can go very low in cell numbers, that opens the door for multiomics approaches, right? So if you need less cells, you can do more experiments with a given sample type or tissue or whatever you, you, are, you have on hand or want to analyze. So what did you do in that direction, uh, enabling multiomics approaches? Yeah, so one of the one of the earliest examples of this from our work, at least I think others were thinking along the same lines. Um, um, but um, we applied a tax seq um, and RNA seq, which of course measures the expression of genes, right? Um, um, the RNA of genes uh, to different uh, types of cells, um, and as cells are differentiating to create your blood, right? So the master stem cell of every blood cell of your body and somebody who knows this process well might, might say like, oh, you forgot exceptions. Um, <laughs> but um, for, for the sake of conversation um, is the hematopoietic stem cell, right? So we have a stem cell in our bones, all of us do. Um, it's called the hematopoietic stem cell, right? And that cell gives rise to all the immune cell types of our body, right? Um, it gives rise to the white blood cells that we get measured in the clinic. It gives rise to the red blood cells that, of course, um, move hemoglobin and, and around right um and then to all the different variants of those types of cells right so we were really interested in, in asking like how does the open chromatin change in the stem cell that hematopoietic stem cell as it differentiates down at the blood and there's lots of steps that happen between that stem cell and the final outcome of a white blood cell that used to find covid or other infections right so um one thing we got to do and this is super super exciting for us is to take human bone marrow Right. And we did this in collaboration with Ravi Majetti and, and Ryan Courses. Ryan Courses has his own lab now at UCSF, um, where we got to sort um, different flavors of stem cells um, in your bones, in our bones, right? Um, not my bone, but um, the donor bones. Um, and then ask uh, profile the open chromatin and the RNA on that same population of cells. Not in the same population, we split the population in two. Um, but that was so, 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 so cool. Cause like we could say like, oh, you know, the open chromatin is up here and these are all these new types of open regions. Some of them are far away from the gene, suggesting they're enhancers. Some of them are really close to the gene, suggesting the promoters. Some of them are doing something altogether we didn't fully understand, but altogether we we're able to kind of look at how open chromatin turns on and then, um, and then how gene expression, of course, turns on um, with that. Yeah, I mean... Uh Yeah, during the course of the differentiation, it looks like, or the the opinion is that like chromatin gets more close, but it seems what you just said more 
to be more di- differentiated than, than than that. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot a lot of things to say there. So there's this um, concept that um, stem cells have more open chromatin, right? Which is true, but it depends how you define open chromatin. We go back to this original comment, which is like how open, like how much do you have to open the door in order for you to call it open chromatin, right? So when we say that stem cells have more open chromatin, what we're mostly referring to is that like the genome is more relaxed. The whole genome is more relaxed, right? Um, and there's less of these really compacted regions, right? Um, but that's like, you know, um, these are in places called heterochromatin, right? These are like not the regulatory elements we're talking about, right? Like promoters or enhancers. But there is more or less the same number of promoters and enhancers in a stem cell, with some exceptions. There's a little bit maybe more in stem cells um, than there are in differentiated cells, right? So, so with the TAC-seq, we're looking at the regulatory elements, the really open sites. But when we say that stem cells have more opening, we're usually referring to like little cracks in the door, right? Like little gaps um, in, in sites that are not, um, you know, um, there. They're in like other parts of the Um so, you know, um, we were mostly focused, of course, that's what our assay could tell us about, um, these really open sites. And, um, you know, over, over many, many years of work, um, you know, that paper, um, you know, uh, other papers that we've published since, um, one of the really neat things we've found is that um, what almost seems to be universally true is that the chromatin of a gene will become open before the gene is expressed, Right. So, so you, it's kind of a, a really cool exercise, and we're trying to capitalize on this idea now using the computational tools and single cell data um, that we can actually use it as a way to like predict the future, right? So if you see the cell opening its chromatin, you can start to make a really strong guess that the cell might try to activate it, that gene, um, as, as it's differentiating, right? So, so nowadays, we can, we're taking advantage of that very basic and fundamental insight that open chromatin happens before gene expression to try to predict um, how cells will differentiate and what they want to differentiate. So um, last year, so when I did the research, I found a paper that was published last year. So 2020, we are recording this in 2021. <laughs> and uh, this was uh, on barcode multiplets. Um, so I didn't know this term before. So I wanted to ask you about that. So can you quickly explain what that is and how often it occurs and why that's a problem? Oh yeah, you're referring to um, now the single cell um, repertoire of tools and, and this paper we published in Nature Communications. Yeah, that was a interesting paper. <laughs> so maybe, I wouldn't say it's controversial. I think the scientific community um, appreciated appreciated the work. So um, you know, over the years, we, I was describing uh, just a moment ago developing single cell taxi in 2015, but we've been very very hard at work. Um, moving uh, those technologies forward, right? Um, in, in any way we can, because, and it's my sincere opinion that um, single cell epigenomics, methods like single cell taxic is the future of how we understand chromatin within cells, right? And that's um, how it's going to become the standard method that, that we'll use um, to, to think about chromatin structure. So um, I think a taxic is, is, is now... Um, You know, I shouldn't say outdated. That's not correct because it has its place, of course. Um, but um, making um, kind of making way for these new repertoire tools we've seen. So um, we've been really engaged in making technologies. Um, we've described a few. Um, there's been commercial interest in developing these technologies, and it's been super exciting to see 
um, companies um, um, commercializing uh, these tools. And we've been assisting in some cases or, or using in other cases, you know, um, these really robust technologies. So, and that paper, um, what we found was um, one of our uh, industry colleagues um, had been using an attack single cell taxi platform um, and um, not correctly adjusting for, for some of um, potential artifacts um, within the single cell data. So namely in the droplet based approaches, sometimes you can have more than one um, bead within a, within a droplet, right? So for those of you who are familiar with that, um, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, um, and so what we actually found using kind of really careful, thoughtful analysis of that data was that um, there's actually a lot of that <laughs> going on <laughs> in the data. So, so we, we kind of validated that and, and really um, kind of um, worked around uh, also a computational solution for correct for it. But around the time of us publishing that paper, we were also communicating that with, with that company. Um, and then um, I think together, we worked together to, to kind of resolve it, um, both experimentally using experimental um, optimizations that they were in charge of, as well as computational and just kind of community awareness um, that we we're doing to, to, um, to kind of um, show that that was the case, right? Not the first time this happens, yeah. but to the credit of this company, um, it was um, they were they were really fast to fix it once they realized okay. it was an issue. But I think it's, so, it shows the importance of there needing to be technology development happening in academic labs because I feel like you know sometimes we think as a community that technology development should just happen at companies, right? But I think sometimes um, only academics can can be like um, guardians. I guess is one way to think about it. Um, from these technologies on um, kind of having systematic biases, these commercial technologies creating systematic biases um, across our mission. Yeah, that makes sense. So when I look behind you, I can see like a lot of lot, lot, lot of ideas written on your wall and <laughs> some some sketches and, and things. Um, that leads me to my next question. So what is it, what you are working on right now and what are your plans for, let's say, maybe the next five years? Oh, that's a that's a broad question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, let's, let's think about let's think about the best answer to that question. So, there's a lot of things we're really excited about, right? Um, and um, I'll start I'll start with 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 one that's that's been recently published. Um, so, uh, we've been collaborating um, with Fei Chen and Ed Boyden for a number of years now, and we just reported a paper at the turn of the year in Science, um, which which we're very excited about, um, which described. Um, are a new technology we invented that is not a taxi, right? So we're now we're moving away from a taxi, but does use some of the same tools and tricks um, where we're actually sequencing the genome of a cell directly within the cell. So that was super, super hard and super fun at the same time, very rewarding. But um, what we ended up doing is, is um, making a whole genome sequencing library within the cell, right? So these are cells grown in culture or cells in an organism like an embryo. And then what we do is we bring high throughput next generation sequencing to the cell. So we actually built a high throughput DNA sequencing platform on our own microscopes um, within the lab, right? And built all the same computational tools for calling sequences and things like that, aligning, um, recreated a lot of those tools uh, computationally. And what we're able to do is this really exciting thing, which was like, now that we can um, just sequence the DNA without ever taking out of the cell, we can ask some really basic, naive questions of, How, how is the genome organized within the cell, right? And um, we're used to other technologies um, that actually require lots of like conceptual understanding of how the data is analyzed, things like that. But with this tool, we can actually just look and ask how, how our chromosomes organize themselves. And 
we found all sorts of cool things there. Um, we applied it to, to early mouse embryos. And I would say one of the most exciting discoveries there is we actually found that the genome structure um, is really random between two cells, right? And that's an emerging appreciation in the field in general. Um, but the thing that we added to that is because we can sequence essentially the whole organism, which is an early embryo. There's not that many cells there, but we can sequence all of it. We can actually find that sister cells, so cells that came from the same mom cell, right? Uh, so sister cells um, had really similar genome structure, right? Um, cousin cells had pretty similar genome structure. And what that told us was that genome structure is epigenetically remembered, right? So the positions of chromosomes in the cell are remembered after cell division. Um, so that's really exciting, and it's an open area, and we're investigating that more. But that method, in general, opens up many, many basic discoveries. So, so one of the things I'm most excited about is to sequence the genome within the cell, but on top of that, do some pretty naive things like stain for, for different um, epigenetic proteins, right? So we can stain for, for things we know about open chromatin or things we know about closed chromatin. And then just by looking at, are they next to each other on an image? We can, we can know whether or not those pieces of DNA in that protein are interacting, right? So, so what we're doing a lot more of this now, asking questions about, you know, um, localization of proteins with, with DNA, using these, these technologies and asking about cell-to-cell -cell differences. So this is a single cell assay. I think Dick's imaging is a single cell assay, right? Um, and asking all sorts of other questions where we're doing like movies of cells and then, and then stopping that movie and then doing this uh, protocol and asking about dynamics, right? So... Um, that opens up so many opportunities that I think um, um, we're tremendously excited about it. Yeah, it, it really sounds very interesting. Um, to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, the first one, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Yeah, so I think that's that, that happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think we all have to overcome and, and you know... Um, Sometimes it's a, it's a real feeling. Sometimes it's a feeling that, that isn't real. You know, you feel that way, but you're still making progress. It's just easy to be discouraged sometimes in science, right? And, and that's, that's happened a lot. And, and um, you know, one time that, that this happens, not just to me, but to everybody, I think, is in moments of career transitions, right? When you're also moving to a new place or doing something, you have to do something different, right? Um, when, I, when I moved to grad school, I was very successful in my, in my prior research experience, and I was very nervous about the transition. As one example. Um, and what I was told by, by a mentor when I was younger was that at some point you got to like trust in your ability to problem solve and trust you'll find a way out of that problem. You know, it's a really hard thing to trust in your, trust yourself not to solve problems, but um, that's what you got to do. Um, so that happened then and it's happened over and over again. Most recently, um, you know, I moved into um, a department at Harvard the stem cell regenerative biology department, love my colleagues, love the environment. But I really did that um, wanting to expand my thinking, um, not just um, so much into the technologies, but also how can we use these technologies to, to create better stem cells for therapies, right? How can we use technologies to really understand um, all these interesting principles of, for example, how do stem cells um, contribute to aging, how do stem cells contribute to diseases? So so most recently, uh, you know, I've been kind of asked to almost reinvent myself again, right? And I think this is a common feature of a scientist um, to learn to learn new things and to incorporate them, right? And of course, when I started doing this process, like, oh, I'll never get there. You know, there's <laughs> so much I need to do, you know, again, you know, even later stages of my career. But 
but I think that's one of the joys of science. And, and um, you know, nowadays I've, I've learned to be comfortable with, with, with um, the uncertain future. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think um, for maybe young listeners who are, who are listening, um, I think that's something that, that we have to learn to do, um, just um, have some confidence in our, in our abilities. So in the last 45 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your maybe most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Yeah, so, you know, I, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so it's funny because it's like, um, I think a lot of people, maybe, maybe again, some part advice for, for younger listeners and, and maybe just reflection since we've been reflecting on, on past work. I'm um, going into this, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily thinking that epigenetics is the thing, right? Um, uh, we found really critical gaps of knowledge in, in the field of epigenomics, right? We, we tried to fill them with technologies and applications of these tools, but at every turn, you know, I think we're just trying to, to do the most interesting um, and important work um, that could help our, our colleagues in science, right? Um, so, um, for, for all of those of you is like one thing that I felt like I was doing is also being very flexible, especially in those early years, um, to, to, um, different directions. Right. And I would encourage everybody to do that, but going forward, you know, one of the things that, um, I'm excited about is, is, um, representing the, the value of developing technologies in a field like epigenetics, but perhaps expanding beyond that, the value of, of developing technologies to answer new questions in biology. I think we've seen revolutions in technology really fuel the discoveries of, uh, really fuel many discoveries, right? Most recently, people working in the lab really like understand or feel like how much single cell RNA-seq and now single cell attack-seq is really changing the kinds of questions they can ask, right? We all, all of us who've been in science a little longer know that High throughput DNA sequencing, uh, Lumina and, and other sorts of these technologies made it this possible. How much has transformed, like the kinds of experiments we even talk about, right? Um, and that's really revolutionized um, biology and asked us, let us ask questions. People even older than that and, and even more experienced know about the value of microarrays, right? Being able to expression, a profile expression of many genes. And then you can continue on cloning, you know, these sorts of things, right? Um, so I just want to kind of, if you're asking me one thing to end on, is, is, um, really thinking about this intersection of creating technologies, but not just to create them, but to, to really use them to, to um, learn new biology. I think that's where um, I like to, to, to sit, but also I hope that um, listeners can, can um, appreciate the, <laughs> the value of technology development, being in academia too, not just the industry. Yeah, I think that's, that's really a good point to end. Uh, thank you, Jason, for your time and for being on the show. I thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.